Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete podcast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston, um, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. And with me today is Olga Dombrowski, who um, has been a sort of loosely affiliated and associated with Uphill Athlete for several years. Just, you know, I think we've had some email exchanges and um, I think Olga, you might have used one of our training plans at one point. And Olga came on my radar really in a couple of these uh, email conversations that we had <clears throat> where she was discussing, you know, some of the things about her professional life and her family life and her climbing life. And, um, and I was quite impressed by some of the things that I heard from her. And then um, Olga wrote an article on our website about um, a solo climb of Denali, which I encourage any of you who are interested in Denali to read. Um, it's a rather novel approach to climbing Denali. You, you and I may be some of the few people that have ever soloed Denali. We can talk about our shared experiences. Um, but uh, some of the other parts I think that will really, that are fascinating to me and I'm really curious to hear more about is how Olga balances her climbing ambitions and goals and trips that she does, as well as her training, along with a, a very busy family life and her professional life. Um, Olga is a medical doctor in Denver. Um, and I think that this is obviously a very, especially right now with, with COVID, that is a, uh, I'm sure, a really challenging time for you. And maybe you can talk about how you know, has climbing and training had to take a bit of a back seat lately or this past year. But um, I, I hope we can have, a, and I'm sure we will have a really fun conversation around you know, all these aspects. Um, so Olga, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think let's start at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I know you're from Poland and why don't you, uh, you, I know that you got started pretty darned early on this trajectory with the, in the mountains. So why don't you give us a little background on that stuff? Yes, uh, so I was born in Poland, in Krakow, and I, um, I'd like to think that I almost grew up in the mountains um, because not very far from Krakow, uh, my grandma used to have a house, which still is within our family because my parents uh, moved there on their retirement. And that's in Zakopane, so that's a capital of uh, Tatra National Park. And that's essentially where I spend all my childhood weekends, holidays and vacation, summer vacation, winter vacation. This is where I started hiking and discovering the mountains. This is where I put my first uh, steps on skis and um, yeah, my, my dad was my first uh, um, ski coach. Uh, interestingly enough, he no longer skis due to a knee injury, uh, uh, but he introduced me to skiing. He introduced me to mountains. And um, by, I think, age of eight, I, I try to remember, uh, by age of eight, I hiked every single trail 
um, there was official trail in Tatra National Park. And I think that just sparked that um, passion and love for the mountains uh, very early on. Uh, very quickly, the, the normal child uh, curiosity led to, well, what if I step outside of the trail and what if I start some scrambling and how about some rock climbing? Um, my parents, of course, were not happy about that. <laughs> but that very quickly in my very early teens years led into uh, introducing to uh, climbing. Well, and there's, there's a tremendous uh, history of like, very accomplished Polish climbers and, and you know, people like Wojtek Kurtyka, um, you know, Jerzy uh, Kukuczka and many, uh, many others and people that aren't familiar, you know, I think to that, to the lay person, Poland isn't thought of as a hotbed of, you know, climbing um, because they don't know about it. But certainly during the 70s and 80s, the, the Poles were kind of leading the way, especially on really big hard, dangerous, like winter ascents of K2, so that sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. And, I, and so and you I have, must have been influenced a little bit by that. Did you have some heroes there? I, I, I can't say a little. I think I have to be honest and say a lot. Um, <laughs> those were my uh, childhood heroes, and those were our um, just everyday dinner conversations. Um, the names like Kukuczka, Wanda Rutkiewicz, and Wojtek uh, Kurtyka were literally like almost family friends because we talk about them so much around the dinner table. Um, Wanda Rutkiewicz was probably one of my early idols. She was the first woman uh, to stand on K2, third woman to stand on the summit of Everest. Um, and she was a woman, so you know, obviously I could relay a lot, uh, but I was only 10 when Wojtek Kurtyka climbed the Shining Wall. Um, I was um, 12 when Kukuczka finished all 14s, uh, 8,000 meter peaks as the second person in the world. And those accomplishments were, I think, very heavily influenced my childhood and where I wanted to go. I literally wanted to be one of them. I wanted to be another Wanda Rutkiewicz. Um, you know, and, and I have to say that I, well, I'm, I'm older than you are, but growing up, you know, being very active in climbing and older in the 70s and 80s and seeing what these Polish climbers were doing, I was like you, I wanted to be Wojtek Kurtyka. And for those in the audience that aren't familiar with this, um, with the, the heritage and that, that kind of amazing period where um, you know, not, not only was Poland going through these um, internal, you know, almost revolution change of uh, government and, and all that. And, and people were seeking freedom too in the mountains, I'm sure. That's what I gather from reading about those climbers that I've read about. Um, but people that aren't familiar with that, I think it's a fascinating cultural story as well as obviously an inspirational mountaineering story to, to read about these guys. And anyone who hasn't isn't familiar with um, Kurtyka's climb on, and, and Robert Schauer's climb on uh, Gashubum 4, The Shining Wall. That's one of the great all-time alpine climbing accomplishments um, and you know, has never been repeated. Uh, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's right up there. You know, and then I think we could put, you know, there's a few other ascents like that. And I would have to say that my business partner might hold, has one of those other ascents on Nanga Parvat. Um, Steve House, 
uh, and Vince Anderson's climb. But in this, you, know, you and I share this same love for, for the, those people and the inspiration that, that they brought to, I think, young climbers like yourself and, and myself who wanted to emulate what they were doing. Yeah, and I'm very proud of that heritage. And like I said, it, it had a very strong influence on uh, on me as a child, as a teenager, as a as a growing, inspiring uh, um, alpinist. Um, and I think uh, the the story is uh, really fascinating. And if anybody is interested, I think Bernadette McDowell did a fantastic job uh, writing a book uh, about all those climbers from Polish climbers. Uh, it's it's called Climb to, for Freedom or Freedom Freedom, Cli yes. freedom Climbers, yeah. right? Yeah. Freedom Climbers. Yes, I've, I'm I'm just finishing the book she did on Kurtika right now, uh, which is a great read. Um, but I understand that I haven't started, but I'm going to start soon that the Freedom Climbers, I understand it's even more engaging. Yeah, yeah. And the book of, um, I read the book of, about Kurtika, and I have to say that uh, it resonates with me very well. So it, uh, Wojta Kurtika and I share the same kind of vision of the mountain that kind of almost philosophical, almost religious approach to the mountain that it's um, to me, this is like, he is another one of my idols. Sure. Well, he's a, yeah, I, the more I learn about him, the more impressed I am by the man. It's, uh, you know, he wasn't just a climber. I mean, even though that was his passion there, this, the whole climbing thing, as you said, it was almost a religious experience for him and, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, fascinating thing. So how did you make that step then from hiker to climber to you know to rock climber to alpinist how did that transition work for you yeah so um so early on i started rock climbing and it was a, a fascinating time in poland because um we didn't have um the rock climbs routes established the way we have right now in tatra you had to have a special certificate to be able to um to climb and uh, my, I was not 18, so I was not allowed to take a test. And my parents did not agree for me to take a test. I had to wait until my 18th birthday. I had all the prerequisites done. I was already climbing, but I was not able to take that final exam. And on my 18th birthday, or majority of my friends just uh, party, and this is the first time you can drink legally alcohol. So that's mm -hmm. usually the way they celebrate. Instead of doing that, I called my climbing instructor and I said, I'm 18 today and I can take my test. I can take <laughs> my alpinist exam and uh, that would allow me to go climb. So at that time in Poland, uh, the climbing was uh, more difficult and more challenging. Um, I, I think I mentioned uh, to you that I learned how to climb rock with piton and by the sound of pitons and everything. Um, that was the time when we started seeing friends. Uh, so the company came up with uh, uh, friends camps, but unfortunately they were so expensive that that would be an equivalent of several months salary in Poland to buy one camp. Mm -hmm. So um, so absolutely not uh, not possible. And um, so a lot of uh, a lot of local ice climbing and rock climbing, not in a sense that we understand now. So it was interesting. When I eventually uh, moved to Colorado a couple years ago and I picked up rock climbing again, um, all of my climbing partners were um, surprised and shocked that I feel very comfortable leading ice. I, I was very comfortable leading ice and putting screws, but yet I felt a little intimidated 
um, leading rock because I was not familiar with the more modern, with the modern uh, gear. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like how do we use those cams? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, obviously that, that came fast, but um, yeah, so it's interesting that I kind of learned it backward. It was more of a ice and snow because that was easier and more accessible for me in Tatras. Um, but then I eventually started exploring uh, countries in Europe and growing. Uh, I grew up uh, poor and my family was not uh, rich by any means. Um, my parents are teachers and uh, were teachers. My mom was a, a middle school teacher of biology and my dad was a, um, a, a college professor of chemistry. But that means no money. Mm. <laughs> so uh, essentially at that time in Poland. So. So I traveled to all my climbing uh, objectives in Europe by hitchhiking. And um, I was in high school when I climbed my first time on uh, Matternhorn and Mont Blanc and Monte Rosa and Half Dome and all of those, uh, you know, iconic peaks in Switzerland and, and France. But I had to travel there um, hitchhiking because I had no money. <laughs> Um, and oftentimes, for example, when modern climbers in Chamonix, they would just take Teleferic and, uh, and ascend very quickly. And getting to the summit of Mont Blanc is really not that of a big deal. Uh, you get to Teleferic and an hour later, you're in Agudumidi, which is 3,800 and only a thousand uh, meter elevation. Well, I had to hike all the way from Chamonix because I couldn't afford Teleferic. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, excuse me. That is a long way. Yeah, that's a, um, quite a quite a ways up there. It's for people that don't know uh, the Chamonix Valley is at roughly a thousand meters or a little over three thousand feet, and the Aiguille de Midi um, or the Cosmic Hut, where people would often spend the night before climbing, um, and these are things that are accessible with the Teleferique, are at roughly I think about um, thirty five hundred or no, maybe closer to four thousand meters even. Yeah, I think the summit of Aguidomidi is, I think, 3,800. Yeah, so that's, you know, we're talking about, you know, for people thinking in feet, this is, you know, roughly almost 10,000 vertical feet that you had to hike, which nowadays, you know, most people ride the Telefreak, although the Telefreaks are closed right now because of the COVID thing. And, and a lot of the athletes I work with who are based in Chamonix are having to do exactly what you had to do. What I did. Do. Yeah, because you were too poor. But in the same time, it was a great experience. And I think by uh, ascending this way, um, I, I built quite a bit of fitness and quite a bit of acclimatization. <laughs> yes, you would. Yeah. And well, you were probably camping, not were you staying in huts? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was sleeping in my tent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then you, you, you said you spent a little time living in Chamonix. When was that? So uh, during my medical school, I, uh, I went to France and I studied for a year and a half in France um, and I got transferred to study in Lyon. But then I spent my entire summer and like early spring and summer um, in Chamonix. And this was one of the best uh, summer jobs I've ever had. Um, um, getting paid for living in Chamonix and being able to climb on my days off. And, and what were you doing for work? So, so I, so I, to earn my living, I worked as a receptionist in a hotel, but the, the primary objective of that summer was uh, to get experience in this small hospital 
uh, in Chamonix. Um, they had this fantastic program at the time when a physician is part of the search and rescue group. So, um, so I, as a medical student, I was allowed to jump on a helicopter and participate in some of those uh, search and rescues. And um, Salewa, one of the European companies, designed a special backpack uh, for the physicians to carry medication. Um, so, um, so the physicians on the helicopter, even though it's such a short distance, such a short flight, the physician on the helicopter was already administering uh, medication on the scene and then flying that, uh, that person, that climber, immediately back to uh, Shamani Hospital. So for me, uh, it was a great experience as a medical student, as an aspiring doctor, but also as a climber. Yeah, oh, for sure. To be able to, yeah, that's, I know my first experience um, in Chamonix, stepping off the train, having you know, ridden the train from Geneva, and just taking one look at those mountains and thinking, oh, I'm in heaven. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, <clears throat> that one summer, I think I, uh, I summited um, around 17 times, uh, <laughs> just because every time I had like a day off or I was working a night shift or something like that, and the next day I had a couple hours, I would r- literally like run quickly and come back and go back to work again. Um, so great experience. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's no small feat because that's about about 13,000 feet of elevation gain from the valley floor to the summit of... Uh, yeah, of- and and few times what I would do, I would hitchhike um, through the tunnel to get on the Italian side mm. to Cormayer and then ascend from the other side, a papal route, and then descend back to Chamonix. Oh. So kind of up and over from the Italian side. Um, and it was funny how Italians always say, you have to do it. That's the only way to do it because our coffee is much better um, than the French coffee. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like that, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> very, very provincial in that way. Um, but it's also part of, it's a wonderful thing about being there. Um, and so then what, so how did you make the move to the U.S.? And and was that at all, was that involved, did that involve a change of schooling or, or what, what brought you here? Um, so I already graduated medical school and I went to uh, work as a uh, Doctors Without Borders. I joined Doctors Without Borders Medical Mission in, uh, in Egypt. Um, and then I found myself off of cycle um, after I returned from Egypt. So I decided instead of waiting, I'm just gonna come to the US on a tourist visa and just kind of come and explore. I wanted to come and visit national parks. And, um, and I happened to, uh, on my first day, literally on the arrival, meet my husband. Obviously, he wasn't my husband at the time. He was my boyfriend. I've never met him before, but mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a friend of my friends uh, from Krakow. We were supposed to be in his best friend, married my best friend, and we were both supposed to be in a wedding. But he, after he got his master's degree, uh, immigrated to Shaman, uh, to Chicago a um, few months before me. And so I met him literally at the airport. And, um, and so my tourist visa, then uh, I, I extended my tourist visa, then I switched my tourist visa to some other form of visa, then to some student visa, and then 20 years later and two kids later and a couple houses together, um, uh, we're in Colorado, <laughs> and uh, and I went through all the recertification exams, and uh, and I'm practicing medicine here. And so that move to Chicago for residency must have been kind of a cultural shock, right? 
it it was it was interesting because i it was very soon after i actually was living in the mountains in chamonix i also had a wonderful summer that i spent in norway just climbing ice and climbing mountains and then i moved to chicago which obviously is a big 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 city but no mountains uh uh to be found and no climbing venue and everybody who i met was uh, intrigued by the move from poland and asking about how of a cultural shock it must have been to move from poland to usa and in fact i was laughing it was a cultural shock but not because i moved to usa it was because i moved from the mountains to a big metropolia and i was desperately trying to find some sliver of a mountain um the closest in the winter that i was able to find is a uh, wilmot mountain uh which is really not a mountain it's a uh, it's essentially a, a pile of trash um covered with like two inches or three inches of dirt and then a ski resort and ski lift are built on top of it um it takes you three seconds to ski down <laughs> i was um i was very unimpressed <laughs> Uh, but that's literally the closest uh, opportunity to ski from Chicago. Wow. Yeah, well, big difference now. And um, it sounds like you're very well settled into Colorado, and I'm sure you've been active there and climbed a fair bit just locally, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, especially this year, uh, it was interesting because as, uh, as for everybody, or almost everybody, 2020 is a little different year. Uh, all my international trips and all my expeditions got canceled. Uh, my race in uh, Switzerland got canceled. And so I ended up finding myself just doing road trips with my family, with my kids, um, kind of everywhere throughout uh, Colorado and Utah, a little bit of Southern Wyoming and Northern Arizona. And, and I was amazed. We ended up spending um, close to seven or eight weeks uh, altogether throughout the summer and early fall. Uh, in the car, um, backpacking or, or ca car camping, doing lots of stuff, but primarily rock climbing, hiking, backpacking, and canyoning, and discover amazing places. I, I took my uh, kids on so many fortuners now that's um, their little competition, uh, who's <laughs> taking more fortuners and thirteeners and. Uh, <laughs> and some classic uh, Colorado scrambles. Um, so it, the competition between the two of them. Uh, but it, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating and it's, uh, it's really a blessing uh, to, be, to live in such a place where in my backyard, in, you know, I live at less than 7,000 uh, elevation feet, but in the same time, within an hour or two hours drive, I can be on 14,000 and uh, right, be in yeah. really pretty mountains. <laughs> and, and how old are your boys now? They're 14 and 16. Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, almost 17. Oh, if you okay. ask my older son, he would say, Mom, I'm almost 17. <laughs> and, and so they're, they're probably getting to the stage, or soon will be at the stage where they can push you a bit. Uh, that's already happened. <laughs> that's already too late. So <laughs> I have now a hard time keeping up with them. They... Uh, it was uh, it was a kind of a fascinating journey to watch uh, when I introduced them to climbing, uh, and I just a few days ago I walked I looked through the pictures of our first trips and uh, and kind of camping family friendly uh, climbing trips to either Shelf Road or some other places or um, um, or Indian Creek and I watched through those pictures and 
they're tiny in like baby climbing shoes and and full body harness um, and helmets that are not even properly fit because they're just helmets are too big. And now, you know, six, seven years forward and, um, and they're climbing a lot stronger than I was, am, or I ever will be. So uh, the joke is that even if I quit my job and hire a full-time coach and only climb for the rest of my life, I will not be able to climb at the level that they climb. (laughs) No, there's no way, there's no way. And um, they, uh, up until this year, they both were on the climbing team and climbing also on a competitive level and getting to all those different comps on the regional, divisional level. My son once got to uh, nationals. And so, so really, you know, and, and it seems like it comes without an effort for them. <laughs> what, what you and I would probably have to work hard, <laughs> really, <yeah>. no, <laughs> really hard and train. That it, it seems like there's just um, just no effort. It is remarkable how quickly kids gain fitness and skills. And they're just in a, a stage of growth where you know their nervous system is incredibly plastic, and you know they're especially young boys are just coming into um, maturity and have a lot of testosterone and begin to develop really quickly. And if you just channel that in some direction it doesn't matter whether it's running skiing climbing whatever they're going to respond very quickly and as you know having had an extensive career as a coach for junior cross-country skiers I can say that there's nothing better for the ego than to coach kids because it makes you feel like you're a really good coach because you know anything you tell them to do almost (laughs) to make them better than than they are and you can then sort of go, oh, look at what amazing job I've done coaching these kids. Um, and it's, yeah, so it sounds like you've really created a couple of <clears throat> climbing machines there. Um, that's fantastic. For sure, for sure. But on the other hand, for me, it's, uh, it's, um, it's very disappointing because my older son, uh, the 16-year-old, he doesn't have to run. But if we go for a run, he doesn't have to train. He doesn't have to practice running. And when we go for a, a run together, I can't keep up with him. So no matter how much I put time in my, into my training, I have to work really hard to barely, barely keep up. And he would turn around and says, mom, you're slow. What's wrong? What's wrong with you? Are you, are you feeling okay today? Yeah. 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 Uh, I know that feeling. So, yep. And, it, and it, unfortunately it's only going to get worse. Um, yes. You know, I, one of my young ski proteges when I was coaching, she went on to become, you know, very high levels, you know, ranked fifth in the world overall. And during her adolescence, she had a younger brother who she had always been able to beat this younger brother. And finally, when he turned about 14 or 15, he began to beat her. And she came to me and she said, what's wrong with me? Why is he beating me? And I said, you better get used to this because I'm afraid that's what's going to continue to happen. Um, And of course it did. Um, And she did get used to it, but it's, yeah, you can't, it's one of the, one of the problems in general with comparing yourself to other people, but especially comparing yourself, you know, to, you know, someone of the other sex or someone of a different age. It's really not a very fair comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, from my perspective as a physician, that's also a a common uh, experience. A lot of of my climbing partners or friends um, uh, 
come up and ask me and, and say, uh, something must be wrong with me. You know, as I, I used to be so strong, I used to be so fast and, um, you know, I used to do this, those kind of races and those long endurance, uh, uh, and I can't do it anymore. And so they're seeking a medical advice on what kind of test we need to perform to prove that there's something wrong with me. And they get very upset when I simply say, you know, it's part of aging. And unfortunately, we all get this way and we have to work much harder over time to accomplish the same goals. And you should point them to the podcast I did with Steve on the aging athlete um, we get a lot of, I get a lot of emails because people know that I'm getting pretty old and they want to know how I'm coping with that, which I have to say it's not the easiest thing to do. But um, Steve and I did a podcast about you know, what you know, we've been lifelong athletes ourselves and you know, how we've, what we've noticed about aging and how we're dealing with it and some, you know, what some things we know from science about it. So yeah, send them to that podcast. It's turned out Absolutely. to be, it, it's actually our, our most popular podcast. And I think oh, I have no doubt. Yeah, that's, that must be a popular topic. <laughs> I think there's a lot of baby boomers and Gen Xers out there now that are hitting that age where, oh my God, I just can't do those things I used to do, or I can't do them as well anyway. Um, well, let's shift gears just slightly because I think it, one of the things that I've found fascinating about what you've done is you you have i mean you've got this um obviously a very important family life and you've got a very busy um professional career and you're not just a casual climber you have done some amazing um climbs you know not necessarily for their technical difficulty but i think more so because of the speed at which you have done these things. And I know that's probably very partly um, because you can't take that much time away from family and work. And, but I think there's an awful lot of people in a similar position who, you know, they going on a two month long expedition is out of the question for an awful lot of folks. How have you, first of all, how did you get come up with the idea? And we'll talk about specifically what some of the climbs that you've done this way are, but what spurred you to think about that and how'd you come up with that idea? And then how did you orchestrate those, some of those climbs? Sure. Sure. So that's a important question in, uh, in the way I recently, in my recent years became a climber and almost like a, a rapid climbing soloist, if you will. Um, and it kind of happened by accident. It literally happened by chance. Um, and I, I think I started with Aconcagua, and that's a climb that is absolutely not a technical. It's just a, it's just a hike on a very tall mountain. Um, it does carry a fair share of uh, prevalence of altitude sickness for that very matter, for that very reason that a lot of people think of it, oh, this is an easy climb. I can get on it. And they, they just move on the mountain too fast um, and they get sick. So the traditional expedition um, for those who are um, using guiding companies, it will be a, a three weeks event. So if you add uh, travel time to South America, uh, back and forth, that's like, it requires literally a month off. For me, it never was an option. There's no way that I can take a month off, off of my um, work and away from the family. Uh, so that never was uh, on, a, on, a, on the radar. Um, 
However, I ask myself that question. Uh, I, I got involved um, a lot in um, Wilderness Medical Society and Diploma in Mountain Medicine. I graduated a Diploma in Mountain Medicine, so that's my additional training. And that's kind of what I do on my free time, um, you know, advise um, clients and patients and climbers when they go on elevation. Um, and I also teach a lot of, of those um, wilderness medical courses and uh, AWLS, et cetera. And so I came across um, some of those studies. They're small and they're not a, a big data, but um, about how we can maybe pre-acclimate. What can be done in advance? What can I do at home to kind of get a pre-acclimatization, get a head start? Uh, so maybe I don't have to necessarily spend three weeks. And then the next question was, what if I light up my gear? What if I don't necessarily do a traditional expedition style when I have to carry tons of gear up and down the mountain and I can just go lighter? And by that, I'm moving faster. I, um, I'm also using uh, less time on the mountain, so less exposure to any kind of element and altitude and potential for any sickness. And... I just did it as a test. I literally did it as a test. So I came across and... You started with Aconcagua then as your test. <laughs> I Literally, it was a test. And I thought, I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to go there for one week. And if it works, it works. If not, I'm just going to be on the mountain for one week and turn around and come back home. And it's still going to be a great experience and, and, and great adventure. But... I use that as a uh, as a test to test my uh, response to sleeping in hypoxic tent, the training that I did before, using a specific gear on the mountain, and how fast can I move. Um, with all that being said, I knew that I have enough knowledge, um, medical knowledge, and also on the wilderness uh, and altitude medicine, um, as well as my own experience that I will recognize where it's no longer safe. So I didn't feel like I was pushing limits into unsafe zone. I knew I was on a popular route, on a hiking essentially trail, uh, where it's safe when I'm surrounded by all other climbers. And, um, and if I don't feel well, and if I have any signs or symptoms of any altitude sickness, I'll just turn around. Or if I get weathered off, I'll just turn around and come back. And I think, Going for a short period of time allows me to have that relaxed approach with no pressure on myself. And so I never, on my climbs, I never developed that summit fever that, that we experience and we see in other climbers. And I can definitely relate to that. And I can imagine that if, if you spend your lifetime savings and all the money that you have and you can only do one expedition um, for, you know, in a lifetime or for the next five years, and that's Everest, and you put all your money and all your effort to go and summit Everest. And if then you're not feeling well or the weather is not perfect, I think there's this internal pressure and the pressure that a lot of climbers put on their Sherpas, on their guides to keep going, because it's like either now or never. And I think that's almost, that, that's counterproductive. And I had the opposite uh, approach. And I said, 
I'll see how far you, I can get. And if I don't get to the summit, not a big deal. The mountain is still gonna be there. Um, and I'll go back home uh, and to work, uh, but hopefully I can go come back uninjured and uh, not sick. And so I climb Aconcagua in six days uh, from trailhead to trailhead um, and in very casual pace, I would say. Um, I felt great on the mountain. I didn't have any symptoms of altitude illness. I didn't have obviously any uh, frostbite or anything and really felt good. So just kind of a casual pace. And um, so then when I did Aconcagua in six days and I thought, well, I never wanted to do Denali because that's another mountain that requires a month off. But what if I do Denali in seven days? Um, and that's what I did. So my next step was uh, to go to Denali. Uh, in the meantime, I obviously did few also rapid climbs in Peru and, um, and Ecuador and Bolivia. So I also was using some of the um, South America climbs, but I went to Denali uh, with the same approach. Um, I said, I'll pre-acclimate by using hypoxic tent. I'll continue training my fitness I'll um, precisely uh, choose the gear because I wanted to make it a ski descent. So I wanted to ski off the summit and I obviously was doing that by myself. So, um, and so that's what I did. So my next climb was um, Denali in seven days. That was via the West Buttress route? Yes. So, yeah, I chose the, the easiest, the most popular route uh, for a reason. Um, going in the Crevasteran uh, solo by myself, where I don't have a partner to rope up. Um, it's in many people's mind uh, as close to suicide as it gets. And you, and were, so, you were on skis though, right? I was on skis, correct. So I think the way I mitigate um, that risk, um, that hazard is by going early in a season, um, which has less of a success rate because the temperatures are colder and essentially lower and, and it's much colder. Um, but the mountain is frozen and it's much safer. Um, so I decided that it's safer for me to go early on in a season, you know, at the end of May, rather than mid June when mountain is nice and warm and very pleasant and much better ski conditions in a lot of, of the above 14 KKM cohorts. But in the same time, the lower mountain become a mining field and traversing that in the middle of the day, uh, even on skis, it's 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 a potential hazard. And so, so I think that the choice of route for me oftentimes is dictated by: Am I doing it solo, or do I have partners to rope up? Am I going on skis, or that's a climbing route, or etc. So, um, so I I was on skis and I carried uh, religiously my skis to the summit. Uh, it wasn't for any time-saving benefits. The mountain was fro so frozen that I had to down-climb the autobahn. There was no way I could ski-cut yeah. it. Uh, I, there <laughs> yeah. was no way to, I, to ski the sand. The same for Rescue Gully, which is growing from 17K camp back to 14. It was just a pure ice, literally a vertical yeah. ice ring. So I had to reverse and many transitions on that summit push on that summit day where I had to go back to uh, ski and crampons, uh, from ski to crampons. That's an interesting story. That, so for people who aren't familiar with this, let me explain a little bit that traveling on a glacier, as Olga has just said, is fraught with hazard of hidden crevasses, crevasses that are bridged 
by the snow, but the snow isn't thick enough to support your weight. And a, a huge advantage of traveling on uh, glaciers is to put skis on your feet because then you spread the load out over a, a much larger area. And in many cases, the, you know, the skis are long enough, they'll actually bridge the, much of the crevasse. And so the, the danger is greatly reduced. I mean, I have skied on Denali I mean, my first ski trip up Denali was 1976, and I've done, you know, quite a, several other trips that way, and, and I've never had a problem with, you know, crevasses when I've been on skis. And often you'd see, you know, people that are on snowshoes, you just, you would see these big holes where they had punched through into a crevasse, and luckily for them, they were all roped up, but it does mean, you know, most of the traveling I've done on those glaciers has been without a rope as well, even when I have partners, because it's just so much faster. And I, so I think that's just a little bit of reference, a background reference for that. And then also what you're saying about trying to actually ski off the summit. I mean, we, I get requests and I talk to people all the time and said, yeah, I want to ski Denali. And I'd say, well, you know, there's some great skiing to be had above like between, let's say 14 and 16. If you get up into that basin at the, on the West Buttress, there's some really nice skiing to be done there in, in good conditions. But there's never going to be good conditions above that. I'd, I've never known of anybody that did anything more than just sort of survival ski to come off the summit. You know, it, you That's, know, that was absolutely my experience. Um, it was not for the joy of skiing. The yeah. joy of skiing that I had was skiing down from 14K camp back to base camp. That was absolutely fun. And, um, and I felt like, you know, it was amazing experience, even though I had a heavy backpack with me, but ski down, um, in this beautiful scenery and untouched powder, you know, parallel to just the ski track, um, uh, was just phenomenal. And I saw a lot of parties down climbing, getting off the mountains on the snowshoes, being miserable, carrying those heavy backpacks down on snowshoes. And I felt so bad for them and so sorry for them <laughs> because I, you know, I ski from 14K camp to base camp in a matter of a couple hours, stop, right. take pictures and, and for breaks. Um, and for them, it's sometimes two days. Two days, exactly. Yeah. Well, how would, let's talk about your ascent. And so you, you obviously, for people that don't know, you fly from the town, the little town of Talkeetna onto the southeast fork of the Cahiltna Glacier, um, just outside of the park boundary. Um, where the ski plane drops you off, and then you begin, that's where the, the climb or the, the your, your trip begins. So how many days did it take you to get to 14? And then what did you do when you got to 14? Yeah, so it took me three days, including the day that I flew in. So immediately after I flew in uh, from Talkeetna, I started ascending. And then the next day I went to 11K camp. And the third day I got to 14K okay. camp. So, um, so the, the, the base camp is essentially around um, 7,000. The first day, there's not much elevation gain. It's just a very long, flat, almost flat um, traverse. Um, and then you kind of ascend to 11 and 14K camp. And, and I was, um, and typically, um, again, in the very traditional way, um, it takes up to a week for most people to reach safely that elevation of 14K camp. Um, and so a lot of, of the times is um, they have sleds and they carry half of the gear split between backpack and the sled to the next camp, cash the gear, come back, sleep lower. The next day, carry the most of the gear and, and move camps. 
and then use a third day as a recovery or rest day. And it's a very slow, in my mind, almost painful process um, to carry that much, uh, that much gear. Um, but in the same time, there is obvious risk with moving so quickly because it's not like I moved from another mountain or another um, you know, training camp up in the elevation. I went straight from work, straight from working 12-hour shifts in a hospital, flew into Talkeetna, and literally the next day started my trip. Um, so I had no real acclimatization um, other than what I can do at home. And when I was doing this a mandatory briefing, especially for uh, solo climbers, it's important, a mandatory briefing with a park ranger. And I happened to have a briefing with the person who knows me. And uh, he was uh, one of my instructors on Rainier when I did uh, crevasse rescue as, uh, as part of my diploma in mountain medicine, a great guy. And, um, and so he recognized me, he, he knew my background and yet he's still kind of worried. He said, Olga, I'm really worried if you are planning on being in 14K camp in three days. Mm -hmm. um, um, but anyway, I, uh, you know, I had my pulse oximeter and I keep checking my symptoms and I felt great arriving to 14K camp. I was planning on taking one rest day um, at 14K camp and then just do a summit push. So my plan was uh, to do a summit push on day five. Unfortunately, that didn't work. Uh, the bad weather rolled in and I got weathered off for, <laughs> for essentially three days. Um, so instead of one rest day, I had to spend more time at 14K camp. I tried to go up on my skis and it was an absolute zero visibility uh, situation. And, uh, and I, I tried to ski the rescue galley um, on that zero visibility day and not a great idea. I found myself about the Bergschrank and obviously uh, started climbing. Uh, at some point I turned around and started descending on skis and with zero visibility, you have no idea where the crevasses are. And I was using that uh, fish pole technique where you like cast uh, a bright fluorescent red or pink <laughs> piece of cordelette uh, on, on the tip of your ski to kind of lay down on the snow to know exactly where you ski. And I would ski, you know, 15 feet and stop and cast again and ski 15 okay. feet. So absolutely not a day that you would want to be uh, going towards the summit. Uh, but then eventually I, um, the high pressure uh, system came in and uh, the, the nice weather was moving in. So I decided to do a uh, a summit push and I, uh, I did it in one day. I skipped moving to 17K camp. So I, I did the summit push, I ski down. The same day I was back in um, 14K camp and the next day I ski down all the way back to base camp. Now that's definitely my preferred way to climb that mountain or that route on that mountain. Um, and Steve and I actually have written about that in our training for the new alpinism book because I think it's safer, honestly. Um, yeah. If to go from 14 to the summit and back in a day, it's a long, you know, for many people that will be a long day, but um, you just don't, you're not having to carry a heavy pack to 17, which for many people is going to exhaust them so badly that the trip will essentially be over by the time, once they get to 17. And then, you know, spending a night at 17 is much more challenging in terms of recovery than spending a night at 14. Um, and then to have to get up the next day and perhaps, you know, maybe do go to the highest point you've ever been in your life and maybe even do the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. It just, I, I feel like 
the reason that I think that that's popular and that many guide services take that approach is most people who go on those trips are not very fit and they can't do a 6,000 foot day. Um, but the beauty of the 6,000 foot approach like you did, and I mean, I've done it several times is you have a 10 pound backpack yes. at the most, you know, you've got a water bottle, maybe a little bit of food and a down jacket. And, you know, it's a, it's a very manageable, in your case, of course, you had to carry skis too, which is another 10 pounds or more. Um, but it's a, it's a much more manageable thing to do, I think, is just when you get above, the, when you get to those altitudes, carrying a 40 pound, 50 pound pack is incredibly taxing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just as a point of reference, um, I kind of uh, befriended uh, a group at 14K camp um, that was uh, professionally guided by Vern Tejas and mm -hmm. whom I met before and a great climber, great guide, uh, an author of a book and, you know, someone who, so Vern Tejas is a person who actually, I don't know the official count. Uh, as of a couple of years ago, he summited Denali 56 times <laughs> and he's the first person who did solo Denali winter ascent. So the first man ever to stand on Denali uh, in winter solo. Um, very prolific uh, climbing guide, but he guides in a very traditional way. So we met at 14K camp and I befriended them because I didn't have a radio and there's usually a weather forecast in the evening. So I would come up to their tent and, uh, and listen to the radio uh, weather forecast. And he got very concerned about my plans when I mentioned that I want to move straight from 14K camp and, uh, and just go light and um, without moving uh, camps to 17K camp. Uh, but then the next day I did it and I came back obviously safely and I was sleeping soundly in my tent. Well, for them, for that expedition, it took seven days. From to, 14 to the summit. From 14 to summit and back. So, you know, on day one, they, they cashed gear at 17K camp, then came down, slept at 14. The next day they moved camps, then the rest day. Then one summit attempt that was unsuccessful, they turned around from Denali Pass and then you know, one more attempt and then came down to, so seven full days. So if you imagine how much effort, how much work, how much poor sleep, higher exposure to higher elevation, yeah. how much food you have to carry, how much fuel you have to carry. Um, for me, this is, this is all about risk versus benefits in the mountain. And if I can move fast enough uh, and efficient enough to do it in one day, there's no doubt in my mind that that's the right way to go. Uh, absolutely. I mean, when there's the, the axiom, I think, that most people know that speed equals safety in the mountains. Um, and especially at those sorts of altitudes. Yeah, that sounds like a grueling thing I wouldn't want to subject myself to. Um, yeah. And I think many people are unprepared for that. I don't know what his success rate is with clients or was on that. I've met Vern once or twice up there. Um, don't know him really at all other than that. And I do have a tremendous respect for his abilities and his knowledge of the mountain. It's amazing. He spent so much time on it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me for clearing my throat. But um, I believe that you know there there is for people that are fit, it can work really well. I have uh, worked with years ago when I was coaching some cross country skiers. These were you know college age skiers who were very fit but almost no mountaineering experience. 
And I gave them this, you know, told them where they should camp and how fast they should move. And um, they, these are guys with you know, young, fit men with no climbing experience. And they did that, that exact same thing. They did Denali in, you know, I think less than 10 days, went from 14 to the summit, had a great time. Um, and so it, it is doable, but it's the, the fitness base that makes the difference Absolutely. for people. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, which is, again, obviously what's the whole foundation of our business is to try to provide that. Before we talk about the hypo use of your use of a hypoxic tent, which I think will be interesting for folks, um, what, what do you do for training? So it all depends of a specific objective. Uh, obviously, the base training and the aerobic training is pretty much always the same. And that's, um, that's one of the big parts of my regular training. But then on top of that, it all depends on what specific expedition requires. So, for example, um, last year when I was getting ready to climb Amadablam and I wanted to do it in alpine solo style, without using a fixed ropes, I, my objective, part of the training objective was to climb as much ice and mixed routes as possible um, and feeling comfortable with being on rope and having just a lot of training and a lot of mileage um, under my belt. Um, so I think that that, that component varies uh, depending of whether I'm going to pull a sled or no sled, whether this is more of a climbing or this is more of a hauling heavy backpack, etc. Um, so um, the, the bulkiness of my training is um, running, hiking on the actual mountains, on the actual train. I, at least once a week, I try to have a one big day in the mountains um, on the after. And then I think this is the best form of the training uh, mm -hmm. to whether this is me running in the trail running uh, shoes or this is more of a uh, scrambling, but being on elevation and covering a lot of ground, um, being familiar with that terrain. Uh, it's almost like a like a muscle memory where you simply not just part of the training, but just like how efficiently you move across the terrain. That's the big part of my training. Um, on days that I can't, uh, obviously I can't always be in the mountains, and I and I have to work twelve hour shifts. Um, I often uh, run or do my mini incline with just uh, uh, water jugs. Um, so that's one of the things that I learned uh, from you uh, as part of the muscular endurance is just carry, you know, water jug uphill carries. And I have a mini incline. That's not a real incline, but it's close enough to the house. It has 200 steps and then followed by some uh, trails um, that I use for that purpose. And I just run laps. And uh -huh. um, a few days ago, now it's getting colder and darker. So what, by the time I finish work, and by the time I get there, it's usually after dark. So I have to have a headlamp. So I always have a headlamp in my, in my car and uh, a backpack. And now it's kind of icy. So I have to have a micro spikes. And, and that's my training. Um, and you have the, uh, you know, starting at the early age of in, you know, when you were not even eight years old, you were hike, doing a lot of hiking. Having that, one of the things I've noticed, having a lifetime of that type of activity has already given you such a great base. Um, you know, many of the adaptations that take place to endurance training, they're there for life. And you, know, you just, you built them when you were a kid and you know, they will go away, of course, but it's easy to maintain them and to restore them back to what I they agree. were. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm -hmm. I often say, tell people that 
what you do through your adolescent years is going to basically be set you up, you know, from a physical standpoint, and maybe even from a psychological mental standpoint, but you know, in, in terms of learning and schooling and all that, but certainly from a physical standpoint, the kind of physical activities you gauge, engage in through your teenage years are going to have an imprint on your body that will last the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the my first formal training with you uh, was actually before Aconcagua. I did that 16 weeks program and, um, and it was really, really helpful. Um, um, I, I immediately saw some gains and I also saw the areas of deficit <laughs> um, that very quickly became obvious, but that's what it's for. And, and I think I was able to turn around that and, um, and got stronger. Um, uh, before Denali, I kind of modified a few things uh, because up until very last minute, I wasn't sure if I was going to take a sled or I can just carry everything in my backpack. Um, the, the challenge with going solo and completely by myself is that I have to carry everything. everything yeah. um, so, you know, I, there's, there's no climbing partner that I share a tent and stove and some of the group gear with. I have to carry absolutely everything. And I'm not the biggest person. Um, so uh, my body weight is also to some degree limiting how much I can carry in my sure. backpack. That's the biggest uh, disadvantage of being a small frame uh, woman. Uh, and so when I, when, when we talk about carrying 75 pounds on my back, um, relatively to my body weight, uh, it's almost unhealthy, uh, <laughs> unhealthy weight. So I was very tempted to, for example, consider, um, a sled, um, because that would help to some degree. Um, and I decided against it, but as part of my training, I was using a spare SUV tire that I keep mm -hmm. in my garage and just behind my house, actually, you can see it from my window. Uh, there's a little hill, and um, and I would just put my big backpack and my mountaineering boots on, uh, strap harness, and drag the tire and do it over and over and over mm -hmm. again. Now, the problem with that is that I live in a fairly nice neighborhood, and it's a gated neighborhood where <laughs> a lot of nice cars drove by, and I have to, I can't tell you how many times people stopped and gave me the second look. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and <laughs> wonder I'm sure. if I was okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've had that experience too. I think most of the people who train doing the things we do have had that experience uh, on that same in that same vein of training, one of the folks that trained with one of our coaches, this was years ago, they lived in you know, some Iowa or some flat place, completely flat place. And their training, this man, or I think it was a husband and a wife that did this, their training for Denali, they had a, a, a relatively small sized lawn tractor, the kind you sit on for mowing your lawn. And they dragged that thing around. They would put it on and they had a, an, some sort of an alleyway or a driveway and they would take turns you know harnessing themselves to this little tractor and dragging that so people can get in, in a, you know very um you know creative with this kind of thing i mean I, I think you know one of the reasons we put that picture of steve pulling the tire at smith rocks in oregon was to show people that yeah we actually do this kind of thing yeah, you know, yeah. It, it can be part of your training we don't use it very much anymore um because we found some other ways to work around that and and, and for the because a lot of people are going to either be intimidated or embarrassed to to have to drag a tire in front of other folks 
I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's kind of, well, let's talk some about your use of the hypoxic tent um, and how that has worked for, for you. You know, we've written extensively about hypoxic tents on the website. And, you know, I think they're, I have some mixed feelings, but I think I have some qualified, I have some qualified reservations about their use, but I'm also an enthusiastic believer in them, especially for the kinds of things you do, which are, you know, very short duration where you just don't have time to um, naturally acclimatize. But so how long did you, did you have a routine that you went through on each one of these climbs? Was it the same, like the number of nights you spent in the tent? Was it the same or was it, did it change from climb to climb? Uh, fairly consistent. Um, I think towards my last climbs last year, when I was ahead of um, to 7,000 meter peak. Um, so when I climbed Amadablon and uh, Kantengri last year, um, it was a little longer period because I was aiming for higher uh, sleeping elevation just prior to, to departure. But I think it kind of was, the hypoxic tent was a, a natural evolution of uh, essentially me sleeping on high Colorado passes, which is the, the previous technique that I've used. And uh, we're blessed enough that we can uh, drive to a uh, 14er like Mount Evans, for example, there's literally a road that takes you all the way to the summit and <laughs> you mm -hmm. can sleep in a car. And that's what a lot of climbers do and in a form of acclimatization. Uh, obviously the best way is to have activity and training on elevation, but with work schedule and family, I don't always have time. So I would sleep on those um, higher passes and elevation. Unfortunately, they're closed in winter. So some of those are not easily and readily available. Um, so, so this is where it kind of evoluted towards hypoxic tent. And first time I use it uh, before Aconcagua, then before Denali. Um, I start with uh, what I would consider uh, a comfortable sleeping elevation for me, which usually is around 11 or 12,000. I'm in the mountains often enough that that altitude as a sleeping elevation, starting sleeping elevation feels comfortable. And that would, but that would be just a cautionary point here. That would be for people living at sea level, that would be much too high for them to Absolutely. Start. Now, this is not a starting point for a majority of people. That's, uh, that, that's why I want to clarify that I, I live at almost 7,000. And so if I, if I, at least once a week, I am on 12, 13 or 14,000 feet, then I'm adapted to that elevation already. Um, a starting elevation for majority people should be really no higher, not much higher than their normal sleeping elevation and you slowly build up. Um, so, um, and then every, I would say three, four night, I would increase that elevation until I would reach the elevation of my highest predicted camp and, mm -hmm. until highest sleeping elevation on the on the mountain objective. And, and um, so um, as far as hypoxic tent, um, there's a couple of things that needs to be said about that. Well, for one is this is absolutely not a magic wand. This is not something that I'm gonna rent a tent or buy a tent, sleep in it and forget the training and I don't have to do anything and it's just gonna be magically, my pre-acclimatization will magically appear. That, that's not where it, it's for. Uh, I think the way I use it for is um, is to really gain that sense of acclimatization so I can speed up the approach time. So, so the amount of time, the number of days that it takes me to get to base camp or to camp one or to whatever significant elevation is much shorter. 
So I can, for example, on Amadablan, I, um, I flew into Lukla the same day, uh, went to Namche Bazaar, and then on the second day to Kambodja, and the third day I was already in Amadablan base camp, and the very next day I already moved to Camp One. So for four days in a row, I was consecutively moving uh, fairly big elevation gains without feeling altitude. Um, and then in Camp One, it was my first uh, uh, day rest. And I think it's really hard to say uh, whether this is anecdotal evidence that it's working on me and a few other climbers that I know um, and, and small numbers of trials, um, mostly military trials, or this is more of a placebo effect. It's really hard to say. The mechanism is really unknown because as you, as you know, um, the basis for our acclimatization when we are on the real mountain and in real environment uh, is a barometric pressure change. And so what we believe is that the drop in barometric pressure somehow triggers the baroreceptors in our carotid arteries. And that triggers that whole cascade of upregulating genes that are responsible for us adapting to that elevation. So that's the first trigger. That absolutely has no place when I sleep in hypoxic tent. No. I don't change the pressure. I still sleep at the very same right. barometric pressure with or without a tent. Yes, right? and that's, so these tents are called, um, they, they're called normobaric hypoxic environment. Yes. So for people that aren't familiar with that, meaning that the, the, the pressure is the same as wherever you're living, but hey, just reduce the amount of oxygen in the air. And... <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think you maybe, do you know Rob Roach at the uh, yeah, mm -hmm. University of Colorado? So I think I've talked about him before, but he did a presentation at a conference I was at. Um, excuse me just a second. Anyway, uh, Rob did a presentation at this conference that I was at about high altitude. We were, Steve and I were presenting at this um, international special forces symposium on winter warfare. And Rob was one of the speakers there. And it was fascinating to hear. I won't go through the whole details of what he studied, but he basically went to altitude with a bunch of young runners and took an entire genetics lab with him. And um, they found that one quarter of the human genome was affected by the change in altitude. So roughly 5,000 genes, some upregulated and some downregulated. And of those, they only knew what a handful of them did. And so there's a massive, as you pointed out, cascade of effect that's going on there. But the, one of the most, you know, my layman's knowledge of, and I think probably many people's understanding of how we acclimatize is that we, we produce more red blood cells. So we have the capability of carrying more oxygen when we're at high altitude. But one of the things that Rob did in this study was the study only lasted for two weeks so that that wasn't enough time for the uh, red blood cell count to go up much. So the hematocrit stayed essentially the same the whole time they were there. But nonetheless, there was a 25% um, average improvement in performance between day number one and day number 14. So something big was, or many big things were happening without even any change in the red blood cell count. And I found that part kind of mind blowing. I went, okay, there's, so 
Yeah, so I, I, I agree. So I think by now we already all agree and know that this is not our acclimatization uh, is not based on hematocrit in a sense that there's just not enough time to produce more EPO and EPO producing more red blood cells from the bone marrow. That process might play some role in more of a chronic acclimatization, but that takes time. And on average, we see that effect after about three weeks. Now, I'm not on the mountain uh, for three weeks at a time to even see and benefit from that effect. We do see changes in hematocrit immediately on day one and two, but what it's uh, this is a reflection of changing in plasma volume. We simply, one of the first uh, response to altitude is uh, we, we breathe faster, so we develop that alkalosis, respiratory alkalosis, and we start peeing more often often. And that's a common experience that a lot of people see. Once on elevation, uh, we pee more often. It's almost like we're on diuretics on water peel. And what it, may, what it means in, ter, in terms of hematocrit is that it reduces the plasma volume. So yes, we do see increase in hematocrit, but that's not because we produce more red blood cells. It's simply they're more concentrated. So, so I agree. There is a bunch of cascades um, based on we exactly don't know what kind of gene are triggered by what and what they're responsible for um, that are very different from producing more red blood cells and uh, an epoprotein production. Have you personally, with your medical background, have you ever done a, a test to see how your hematocrit changed from day one in the tent to the final? So I did not. And the person who convinced me that it's worthless <laughs> was Peter Hackett, who is uh, one of our um, very good high-altitude specialists and author of many, many chapters and books. And um, Peter is one of my teachers at uh, Wilderness Medical Society and Diploma in Mountain Medicine. And, and he was one of those people who, who pointed out that you might not see any results and any changes. Um, it, and I did have sporadic. It wouldn't be uh, any consequential, any sequential testing, but I had sporadic hematocrit check while sleeping uh, in a hypoxic tent, and there was no change. Um, so, so he kind of steered me away from that, saying, you might not, this is not the way to, to measure that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the, the majority of the studies that we have uh, up until now are coming mostly from military. So military folks are very interested in uh, using uh, hypoxic tent or any kind of remedies that would allow, you know, if the soldiers are put in a very harsh environment, let's say in Iran or Pakistan, in the very high mountains, uh, they can't really stay there for too long. So at some point they have to descend, get some rest, refuel, rest, and sleep well. Uh, but on reinsertion to the altitude, they've noticed a lot of um, acute mountain sickness and a lot of hip and haze. And so the, the question that military folks ask is, what can we do to prevent that from happening? So even the military um, center on the summit of Pikes Peak uh, is, uh, is testing a lot of, of that. And unfortunately, those are all small studies, small trials where an N number is, you know, 20, 30. So this is not a, uh, an, an compelling evidence um, like we're used to in medicine, you know, uh, something that in order to call that this is evidence-based medicine, we would have to have a well-randomized study with much larger number of participants and it should be an ideal word. Uh, randomized, so you're sleeping in a tent, but you don't know if it's hypoxic or it's normoxic. 
and that simply can't be achieved because obviously you already no. know you know you feel the symptoms you wake up with a headache if you crank up your altitude too quickly and uh, so so this is very difficult to obtain and of course very very expensive so we might never get that amount of evidence that that we that we want from the trials and from the studies that we have so far what we learn uh, is that it has to be done uh, systematically. It has to be for a minimum of seven hours a night, and it has to be minimum six nights a week. So you can't really take a break and do it on and off. Right. Um, and it should be seven, uh, seven hours um, every night. The way I use it is, like I said, I use it to improve my ability uh, to acclimate or acclimate fast, or if you want to call it pre-acclimate. So when I arrive to the mountain, I'm ready to go. I don't have to spend that much time on the lower elevation getting acclimated to that lower elevation. I'm not trying to increase my performance. And um, they're actually, and I think your point will be that a lot of time um, there is a, a, a counter benefit of that sleeping in, uh, in a hypoxic tent in the form of that we don't uh, rest and recover as well as sleeping without uh, hypoxia um, and that would be a valid point so if it, what i would say i think my take on that is that if someone is a professional athlete and they're doing those incredible climbs that requires the extreme level of fitness and performance but in the same time they have plenty of time to get to the mountain and acclimate in a traditional way that's probably not going to work for them because I think that's going to just hinder the effect of their training prior to the trip. And, um, and it's going to be counterproductive overall on their training performance. Now for me, I'm not a professional athlete. I, um, I don't go there to, to establish a new route, but my goal is to go into significant elevation in short period of time and then come back home and go back to work. So I think my objective is how can I make sleeping on elevation safer without getting sick and altitude illness? And I think in that respect, sleeping in that tent for nights prior to trip um, is helpful. Statistically speaking, what we know is that it's decreased the prevalence of acute mountain sickness and it decreases the prevalence of um, HACE, um, high altitude cerebral uh, edema. It does not prevent you from getting hate so it has no effect on uh, prevalence or incidence of getting hate so high altitude pulmonary edema um, and like I said I think my experience uh, is very good I'm I'm very happy with the results and I keep pushing the elevation that I keep getting to um, I haven't reached my breaking point yet uh, I, I haven't uh, got to the point that I went on a trip and I felt too sick uh, to continue ascending. Uh, now, granted, I have not been on 8,000 meter peak, um, so that might be a, 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 a definitely a test, but I'm willing to continue that because I think it still allows me to uh, keep going to work until my very last day, right prior to going on the expedition, um, continue to be at home with my family, which is really also very important just prior to leaving for a week or 10 days. Um, and also uh, achieving those uh, ascending elevation in much faster pace 
than most people would consider safe. How long was your total trip on Amadablam from door to door? Eight, eight days. Uh, well, um, I think it was 11 days, uh, including travel time. From but Denver, eight, Denver to Denver. Yes, but eight days from Kathmandu. Yeah. Well, I concur, I think, with everything you're saying. And uh, I mean, when I said I have a reservation with regards to um, the use of hypoxic tents, it's basically that, as you pointed out earlier, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a, a, a quick fix. And we have found that the training is a, probably more important, I think, for many people who are not very fit. And the, where we have seen problems is that people can't balance sleeping in the tent and recovering enough to continue their training. And, and not only, I'm not talking about just amateurs, one of the you know, best high altitude climbers in the world, David Gotler, who I coach, he doesn't use a hypoxical. Um, he, of course, he does live in Chamonix and he has an opportunity to, to sleep at you know, 4,000 meters if he chooses to, and he does, he prefers that, but he also, he finds it has a negative, he has used the tent in the past, but each time he uses it, he finds there's a negative impact on his ability to train hard, train a lot. And, you know, of course, he's someone who's training, you know, I'm sure much more than you're able to train in a, in a week. He has a lot of time on his hands to do that sort of thing. So he might be out 20 plus hours a week training. And so the training load on him is quite high and recovery will be sure. impacted. Um, you know, someone on the other hand, we look at you know, someone like Killian, who we have to say is, you know, maybe the fittest <laughs> mountain athlete in the world. And he used the hypoxico before his rapid ascent of Cho'oyu and, um, and Mount Everest. And uh, because he was, you know, I think he was in base camp in, from in Cho'oyu two days after leaving Geneva. And yeah. so you know, that's a very rapid ascent. Um, but his wife, uh, Emily, who's Forsberg, who's also an incredibly fit person, didn't, could not do the training and sleep in the tent. So there's a, quite a variety. And, and I would suspect, given your training background and your lifelong history, that you might be one of those people that you can handle the training and sleep in the tent in, in the hypoxic environment and, and do pretty well with it. But that's my only real caveat for people who are going to use a hypoxic uh, tent for sleeping. <clears throat> I mean, all the things you said are correct. They're very gradual increase. And I think monitoring your resting heart rate and your um, pulse oximeter with a pulse oximeter in the mornings to see, you know, what, where you're at and then re refining or um, adjusting training according to how do you feel? How did you sleep? You know, if you wake up in the morning and your, you know, O2 sat is 80, um, you might want to modify your workout for the sure. day or not do that workout for the day. <clears throat> but I've kind of, you know, I, I own one of those uh, set, um, sets. I have a tent, and although it's on loan right now to a mountain athlete that I coach, but I, I've used it, and as you probably can attest, sleeping inside one of those things is not a very pleasant experience. No, absolutely not. It's stuffy and muggy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you must have a very understanding sleeping and partner. <laughs> and close, uh, yeah, and claustrophobic. And uh, yeah. I went through two different setups. One is this giant big tent that is a little more comfortable, but it goes over the entire bed. Uh, mm -hmm. Or I also use the small one that only goes kind of above your head and chest. Oh, okay. None, none of them are ideal. 
<laughs> but but to be um, to be complete in that discussion, um, I want to mention one of the experience that I had on on Amadeblan, and um, so I was I found myself together with uh, professional athletes from uh, the North Face team, um, trying just an alpine ascent on Amadeblan, so the same route, and. Um, and we, they arrived to the base camp, uh, I think, 10 days before me and already did one round of acclimatization uh, trip, already cashed some gear and set one tent in, I think, camp one or maybe even camp two. Um, and anyway, so and we ended up being at camp two in the same time. Um, and, um, and they unfortunately bailed despite all that extra time to yeah. get acclimated on the mountain and being extremely fit. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that they're, you know, hundreds times fitter than I am and faster and better climber. Um, they decided to turn around and they didn't summit. Um, they were not feeling well uh, and they had those effects of altitude. Uh, we talk about it. And at some point at camp two, uh, they even thought, oh, maybe we'll, get up in the morning and we'll try for summit push. And I did, and I went up, but they packed their tent and went down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for me, um, as, as that, that was very telling experience mm-hmm. that you can be extremely fit and yet you're still a subject to altitude illness. And uh, they hit some bad weather at the beginning. Um, so that obviously exposed them uh, they increased the time that they had to spend in base camp. And what that means is that that the time, the exposure is much longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we talk about exposure to altitude, exposure to uh, just worse air and colder air and maybe different food that you're accustomed to eat and maybe different sleeping conditions mm-hmm. and everything. And I think over time, when you accumulate all of that, when you add it all up, it might, uh, it might take a toll on the body to the point that it might be a no summit. Uh, yeah. Just because, uh, you know, one of them, one of those athletes, uh, like I said, professional athletes, um, he was uh, fighting some respiratory illness. And whether it's a, a GI bug, a stomach flu, or traveler's diarrhea, or some respiratory illness, it's much harder to fight those infections when you're in altitude and when you're your body is trying to acclimate. And so I think by increasing that exposure and spending more time, you actually, uh, that's, that's oftentimes is counterproductive. And what that, with them, it meant no summit and they went home with no summit. Um, so I think the benefit that I see in myself is that not only I can do uh, a lot more of those trips uh, in, in, a, in a given year being still full-time physician, uh, but it, less it shortens the exposure it shortens the time and altitude it shortens the time where you know uh there is weight loss and muscle mass loss and everything combined together if i only spend eight days on on the mountain it's probably much safer overall for me than 30 days i yeah well this goes back to that same lightweight thing we were talking about earlier that you know speed is safety in the mountains and um you know and it doesn't even mean it's nice to be able to move fast when you're under that big overhanging serac. Um, but it's also nice to not have to be, you know, on the mountain. I mean, my, one of my worst experiences with um, exposure to altitude was my um, trip on K2, where I was 
on, I was in, you know, in or above base camp for over 60 days. And I had one of the, you know, this was in the early days of these uh, uh, watches that would measure altitude. And, and I put in over 100,000 vertical feet in those wow. 60 days. And by the end, and then, and then involved in two, two full summit attempts where we had to turn around because of conditions and weather. By the end of that trip, I was a wreck. I was a shell of a human being. Um, and I'd lost a huge amount of muscle. Um, my, my energy level was so low. I, could, you know, I remember you know, by the end of the trip, we had a, a little outhouse off the side of the moraine and it was only an elevation drop of maybe 15 feet. And by the time the trip left, it was hard work for me to get back up from the outhouse sure. to my tent. Sure. I was just, you know, exhausted, that, that exhausted. So yeah, that's, that's obviously an extreme case of spending too much time at, at altitude and doing too much work there. But I think it, it speaks to that exact same thing. That, you know, if it, if it has that much of an effect on you for, to be there at 60, for 60 days, you know, being there for 20 or 30 is going to also have a pretty deleterious effect on the body um, and psycho psychologically too. You just get sure. burned out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, Olga, this has been a really fascinating talk. I'm so glad you agreed to. I had to twist your arm a little bit to get you on here. <laughs> um, <laughs> you thought, oh, who's going to care what I have to say? And um, Well, just like you had to twist my arm to write an article, that was yes. this, my, my exact same concern. Like your, uh, your website carries to so many professional athletes and so, you know, people who... I admire and I look up to, um, and I'm absolutely not their competition. You know, um, um, my objectives and goals are very different. And uh, my full-time job, obviously, as a physician is uh, I'm not a full-time uh, professional athlete. <laughs> no, obviously not. But I think that's that one of the reasons, and I, this was part of my arm twisting to get you on here to talk to me about this, is many people have the impression that uphill athlete and our books are really catering to the elite athlete and they're not i mean you you're on the very high end of the spectrum in terms of people with accomplishments coming you know who who are associated with uphill athlete most of the folks that either come to our website or read our books or that we deal with on a one-to-one -one basis whether it's you know emails or phone consultations or coaching they're, they have a busy professional life and families just like you do, and they're struggling with balancing all that stuff out. You know, there's, I can tell you that we coach, I think, about six professional athletes. And uh, so it's, you know, and out, that's out of, you know, a couple of hundred athletes that we are currently coaching. So it's a tiny sliver of our audience that, that, um, is in that category of, you know, all they have to do is eat, sleep, and train. Um, and much more, many more people. And for them, their problem is not to train too much. You know, they, in your case, and in many people's case, it's just finding enough time to do any training. So I think, you know, one of the reasons I twisted your arm so hard to get you on here is I think you have an amazing story. Um, it's, you know, you're, it's wonderful that you, ha you, know, you, st you have this spark of enthusiasm and you've done these cool things. But you've also balanced that and managed it with uh, obviously a, a wonderful family life and a, a very busy professional life. And so 
that that I think will will resonate with a lot of our listeners. And so thanks again for yeah. joining me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the very last thing that I want to say is uh, for anybody who tries to uh, balance those things, it's doable, of course. Uh, but I think one of the key to success is that I, um, I try to be present at the moment in whatever I do. Uh, so when I'm at work, I try not to uh, think about mountains. <laughs> when, I, when I'm in the mountains, I obviously miss my family and I try to reach out whenever possible over, you know, inreach or send a text. But I try not to feel guilty for being away for one week away from my family. And, um, and I think that creates that, like, be fully present at the moment at whatever you do. If you're training, that's your time to train, not time to think about work or what's left from work. And, um, and I think that was, for me, a really key to balance all of those things. Well, that's great advice. Yeah, I think in, in many aspects of our life, just being being present in our, you know, being present in the in the now is very important. Um, that's a great, great sage advice. Thanks. Thanks for that. Well, I hope maybe we can get you on again after your next adventure when this whole lockdown COVID thing ends and you are back out in the mountains again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Love having you on. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. That was right. fun. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.